Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast brought to you by 70 Agency. You're listening to Martina and Barbara. Welcome back to 70 Tech Talks. As you might remember, we spent our last episode chatting to 70's co-founding partner, Yuan, about building resilient businesses in a globalized economy. This week, we're back with Yuan for the second part of the discussion where we deep dive into cybersecurity, the hacks, the threats, and the ways to keep yourself and your business protected. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. We've talked so much, or like we've mentioned it quite a few times, but since the world became flatter, uh, and yeah, with all the technologies that we have available today, what what has happened with cyber threats, um, and what how have we responded, let's say globally to to those cyber threats? Yeah, so um, I've been working with one of our customers. I think I've done five different security stories for mm. them, figuring out like how do they create security, why are they good at it, and what's the messaging around it. And um, so I kind of, and I think I did the first one about maybe eight years ago. And every, in every iteration of this story, it just says more cybersecurity threats and more skilled threat actors. That's kind of, that's the, it's the same driving forces for all of them. Mm. All of these kind of, over these eight years, it's been like the same thing. Mm. And I think it, it goes hand in hand with the, 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 same re, the same drivers that drove the flattening of the world so that we actually could have this uh, global world that, that work well has also played straight into the hands of the people that want to disrupt this world uh, and, and make a, a buck from that, right? So, you know, if you just go back to early 90s when the PC became kind of household, the whole hacker scene had this nice, cool, almost romantic vibe to it. No, 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 hackers, like I, I've said this so many times, to my friends back in in high school, like no hackers are, they're just geeks uh, that love to play around <laughs> and see if they can, you know, if they can get into systems. And you know, to some extent, it was kind of true mm. because you did not have organized to the extent that we have today, anyway, yeah. organized Cyber crime group. syndicates doing this, or even like nation state actors uh, uh, deploying this. Of course, NSA existed, mm. but it wasn't like they had, like you know, one of the biggest supercomputer clusters in the world just to be able to both defend mm. and attack uh, other countries. So, so this has gone like the business of hacking has also, you know, grown and become a global phenomenon, just yeah. like the global trade has been, you know, supported by by technology evolution. So, it's it you know it has just kind of pushed every industry and every company to be super aware of mm. the of the the threat services and the attack services that they have towards the world and they need to kind of deal with that so it, it, it's most likely one of the most important things going forward especially since you know going back again I say it again like this we have different values around the world we don't share the same objectives and that will be 
to, to, to use the power of, of cyber attacks to, to push your enemies or your push your, your, um, the people that don't agree with you essentially mm. in, into doing things will just continue to happen uh, because you can actually wage war without invading other countries. So, and, and that, will, that, will, that will most likely just grow uh, in, in the current uh, state of the world that we're in right now. And this is a very basic question right now, just maybe to, for some listeners who are maybe not so familiar with cyber crime, uh, why does cyber crime happen? Like what is the, why did the first, let's say, um, cyber crime groups uh, come to life? I, I think for multiple different reasons, uh, Uh, it's you can't pin it down into one mm. category of, of groups or one category of people, um, but but I would say like look at incentives. It's about making money to a large extent. Uh, so from a business perspective, if you take the business angle, you can make money with ransomware or whatever mm. ways of making money. You can you can take a geopolitical perspective on it. You want to maybe create instability in your uh, in your opponent's country, or just um, you know practically create instabilities. But it could also be you know for for information gathering. You might want to gather, exploit you know, someone. Yeah, know what other people know. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of different kind of reasons to this, and and but what it's not. As much anymore, it's about you know defacing someone's web page, you know, which was usually you know back in the golden days of hacking, you know, when they were just nice people, <laughs> you know, you you broke into Telia yeah. web page web server and you wrote Felia <laughs> because you didn't because you didn't like because you didn't like you know whatever you know that Telia was bad at customer care or or they had too high. Prices for your internet subscription, so you 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 stop watching uh, <laughs> X Files. Telia, uh, and then you know in the in the and, and then you're like, yeah, I watch X Files now. I'm gonna deface Telia's web page because it's fun, right? Yeah, th- that is not the threat anymore. Now it's like it's super important. And now to, there's to, to defend from this. There's much, much bigger examples that we've actually been made aware of in quite recent years. Should we mention some of them? I mean, there is a few groups that we know of. I think a lot of people know about them because they've been in the media and they've crashed big companies, global companies. But uh, let's mention the first one that we have, NotPetya. Yeah, NotPetya. These are all like, these are also interesting. They are good stories and Mm. there's other places where where uh, where you can listen to these uh, uh, stories about hacks that I can just recommend. Like, yes, listen to Darknet Diaries. Yeah. Great example. podcast. It's so much fun uh, just to to listen to the story behind these. But but not Petya. It's an uh, it's it's in, first of all it's an interesting name. Mm. Uh, uh, it's uh, there was a hack prior to not Petya that was called Petya. <laughs> and then uh, the not what Petya hack. So okay. creative. What makes it, what make it complicated? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like it's, it's, it's a it's a it's remind. But isn't not Petya very reminding of like they are very Petya, similar yeah. to each other? But it wasn't Petya, so so they couldn't find a good name, so they called it not Petya. It's not so, Petya. So it was essentially a um, an attack on a Ukrainian tax preparation program, mm-hmm. a very commonly used um, um, 
financial software yeah. that a lot of people in or a lot of companies in in the Ukraine in in, in Ukraine you in Ukraine yeah <laughs> it was a very common tax preparation problem that a lot, uh, program that a lot of companies in Ukraine used and um It, it, it's if you're a Swedish listener, it's I mean it's it's similar to like Visma yeah. or Fort Knox or something like that. And they, there was a worm in that, uh, and it was um, uh, using an exploit in Windows uh, that's called um, uh, Eternal Blue or the hacking tool used. We call it Eternal Blue, which is also an interesting side story. But let's take that because it also mm-hmm. shows the sure, tell us. The, uh, the the nation state dimension of this. So Eternal Blue was an exploit uh, developed by NSA. Uh, who is an NSA? Let's just clarify yeah. it for yeah, someone so it's who wouldn't National know. National Security Agency, which is uh, the U.S. cyber defense, well, cyber defense organization. But one could uh, argue that it's not only about defense. Um, and they developed this exploit so that they could break into Windows uh, operating system um, if it had specific characteristics, and they kept this a secret. Like, and this is, you know, this start, this in itself was a bit of a debate when they got known, uh, because why would a uh, governmental entity keep an exploit that belonged to like a software for a company in the same country mm. that the agency actually came from? Uh, but it was actually it was uh, it was um, this, so Eternal Blue was leaked by a group called the Shadow Brokers. No one really knows who they are, so there's kind of still a bit of a mystery. So somehow they acquired this and sold it on the black market uh, or gave it away. Actually, I think so people could use it, and it's a very intricate uh, kind of hack. I don't know it uh, in detail, but so we can leave that aside. But mm-hmm. it just shows how. You know, uh, uh, an exploit developed and managed by NSA for most likely not defensive purposes, mm. all of a sudden just leaked out into the world and just wreaked havoc mm. on the world. So anyway, so the NotPetya hack um, um, infected a number of computers in Ukraine, and it, the characteristics of this particular uh, worm is that it could spread from different computers. That all use the same kind of software, but it could spread to different yeah. com- companies. Uh, and Maersk, the Danish um, um, shipping company, so um, they had they. I mean, they are one of the world's biggest shipping companies, and they had operations in Ukraine. Uh, and they used this tax preparation program, so their computers were infected by this worm, and all of a sudden, they all just shut down. Like, and once it got into the Maersk network. The worm could propagate to essentially every computer in the Maersk network, and globally, I mean, these are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of computers. How much time did it need to spread? I don't remember, but it was not that long. It was like, like it minutes, was, I think. Yeah, and they, like they, when they saw that this happened, and this is like I get goosebumps just talking about, like they could How see they that the worm it. was spreading, and they were able to unplug. A few computers that was actually offline at the moment, and they could unplug them, so they weren't infected. And from that, from those computers, they were ma- they managed to salvage. When they when they did this, when they repaired this damage, they could kind of reboot the network from those disconnected computers. Wow. 
Yeah, didn't they find like one computer somewhere in Africa that wasn't? Yes. Co- yes. Yeah, and they had this command center in in the UK where they were like dealing with all this, and they had to ship this computer to that place. So then, like, wow. do not plug it in into any internet connection. <laughs> I love that story because it's such a, a multi layered example of what we've just been talking about. Yeah. First of all, how Ukraine was the target of this attack. But it spread quite quickly to other countries, to UK, to Poland, to Germany. They weren't as infected, but they were still infected. And businesses had to be, well, had to force, I suppose. Uh, But then the other level of that attack is the fact that since Mashk was affected, then global trade was paused as well. Yeah. So both businesses and trade had to all of a sudden... Yeah. All of a sudden infected. And and, and Maersk is... Massive. They're so big, right? Mm. I, I think they're the biggest, but I wouldn't. Um, it's not a hill I would die on. <laughs> but I mean, they are at least top three, uh, top four of, of the of the shipping companies, and they are the 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 blood vessels of 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 the modern economy. And I think this just goes back to show. This is also why we started this conversation in this weird place with with you know Thomas Friedman's book because a very very nicely put together worm aimed most like most people think it was Russia that wanted to uh, to disrupt the Ukrainian kind of economy but very quickly it spread globally and it stopped you know Maersk in their tracks and when they stop when you stop Maersk you stop the world yeah so this is just a good example of the resilience that you know that is needed in the global supply chain to manage Otherwise, you know, we we are at these risks all the time, um, and we don't really think about it. Um, yeah, because it even affected some of some Russian companies, right? Some, yeah, but less. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> they might yes. have back, you know. <laughs> but the point is just that that you maybe as an attacker, you don't even know how it's actually going to play out. Because while you, as soon as you put that, you know, worm in there, it's going to spread. More or less uncontrollably. Yeah, mm. yeah, most so, likely it will. Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, I think the, the not petty attack is an is an uh, is a good example of the fragility of the system that we built. In this case, from a pure cybersecurity technology perspective. And it's often just based on one human factor, yeah. right? Yeah, and we'll get back to that a little bit. Like, how do you how do you defend yeah. yourself yeah. against these? Because it's not always. Well, most commonly, it's not about super complex hacks. There's always like a human involved in this. So to, to actually defend yourself against these things, it's usually just don't click that link. Exactly. <laughs> don't open that don't, email. Don't open that email. Don't <laughs> no. just plug in that USB stick that you randomly found outside of your uh, of your office building. You know. So there's this very simple things that you can do as a company that will reduce the risks a lot. In obviously mm. not hundred percent because you never do that, but most commonly the most common attacks can be fairly easily mitigated. And then also another case where Eternal Blue was a a case for an attack or used for an attack to spread was the WannaCry? I think it's been used in, in multiple different ways, but the most known um, attack is on the National Health Service in the UK. Um, they got infected by the WannaCry. It's similar to, uh, it, well... It uses this eternal blue exploit for um, 
for uh, Windows machines. Uh, but it does a slightly different thing, but it's a ransomware, so it shuts down your computer. And essentially, the whole NHS network was grinding to a halt, um, and no one could do anything. So they had to postpone all kind of non-necessary surgeries, mm. and they had to send people with just a sore throat home because they couldn't do anything. Um, and it and, and it spread violently inside of the networks. It was not only PCs, it could be uh, anything that ran on a vin- Windows server. So mm. it could be uh, ra- like, um, what, what do you call them? Like what you do? Um, yeah, the MRI, MRI maybe. MRI scans or, or um, x-rays. Mm. Like it, it was just like, oh my God, what's going on here? It's very interesting because in that episode, so the um, Darknet Iris has a great episode on that and they talk about just uh, the different... Um, techniques that the NHS had to take in order to still run some of the operations because it is it is a health service you can't have not have health service but how they started using people to you know go get the results and ship them like bring them back to a hospital where it was needed so their operations had to change completely within i don't know like less than an hour probably um but uh, Yeah, and then the attack, as you say, was was um, when you mentioned that it's quite easy sometimes to to just save it or like um, bring it back. Um, it was just one person figured out how to block the virus from spreading. Yeah, it was in the in the code. There was a, there was a hard coded domain address. Mm. What, what, ha- do, what does it mean when it's hard coded? Oh, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so in the code, there was a, there was a, it was, a, it, it could not change. You had to rewrite the code for it to change. Otherwise, you would maybe use a variable parameter or a variable, um, um, not a parameter, a variable. Um, you could you could change it dynamically if you wanted to, but it was not like that. It was written like here's the IP address of a of a place on the internet that mm. you need to that need that it was needed to actually be activated. Be activated, and you could actually block that. So 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 the actual the the the, the resolution to this situation was quite simple. simple once you actually looked into the source code mm-hmm. of the virus, which a lot of people did. But it was. A random guy, who a very was young work, yeah, programmer, yeah, and he wasn't working at a bit, one of the big tech companies, but he actually found this, and it's just like, what if I make, what if I block this IP address, and then, well, that worked. <laughs> he <laughs> just, he, he just bought the domain and activated it, yeah. and the attack stopped. Yeah. So it was a very oh, wow. weird yeah. kind of resolution to this particular challenge. But who would have known? Like, it could have been that was just like a, everyone was kind of stunned, but that, that's mm. the design of the actual hack. But this is then the second time we mention Eternal Blue, and uh, I think Microsoft had released some patches yeah. to that exploit. But the reason that not all computers had it updated is because Microsoft hadn't made it mandatory mm. to for this update to be pushed through. Mm. How responsible should a company like Microsoft be in this case to provide a secure solution to everyone with? The device that has this exploit. I mean, they did, right? The, mm. the the fix and the patch was out there, so you could do it, but they choose not to do it. And and I think it would be very hard, I think, uh, to and risky to just automatically push these kind of things to 
It could be an end user or it could be an IT administrator of a network. And if you just, if you just override that and say, I'm going to push this patch, like just push it such a patch, what would be the other implications of that? You don't mm-hmm. know, right? I mean, someone might be, I think it's, it needs to be up to the administrator to make a call, like, do I need this patch? Mm. Uh, what can it prevent? Um, what are the implications of other things built in my system if I deploy this patch? For an end user, like, like a normal user of a, of a Windows-powered PC, I mean... Usually nothing will happen, obviously. But if you if you have a much more complex network, maybe you need to assess if you send this out to seventy thousand devices, which was the number of devices that was locked in the NHS WannaCry attack. Like, can I just push that out? And during an X-ray, mm. or happens during a critical time in the network, they don't know if they are being used or not. So I think that's a maybe they should. Obviously, being continuous communication and dialogue with different mm. IT administrators that exactly, run this, yeah. make, like make sure you do this or update this or patch this. But at the end of the day, it needs to be the person who owns the system that needs mm. to do that. But but maybe then, if we go one level below Microsoft, then it's the IT uh, providers. Every big large corporation has its own IT department. Yeah. So is it then on them to educate themselves and to stay up to date and make sure that the update is being coordinated, that they coordinate this update for each company? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I I read somewhere that, I don't know how many it was, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of uh, Windows machine in NHS at that time. Like Mm. maybe, was it 50%? I don't know, but it was a double digit percentage that still ran Windows XP. And this is actually, this was in 2007, when, I don't... 2017. 20, oh, sorry, sorry, 2017. Like, when did XP, <laughs> you know, when did they stop yeah. supporting XP? It must have been like way back, like in the middle 2000. Now, this, now we would really have to Google this Google on the fly, that, yeah. but it was like, it was not 2017. No, 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 it was long before. XP was, you know, back in the day when I used yes. <laughs> Windows PCs. I think and I was, was a teenager at that time. Yeah, yeah so it was a long time ago. And, and uh, yeah. Well, it was launched 2001. Yeah. So that's 16 years down the line, wow. and they still were using, you know, those kind of old machines. So they had not been updated for a long time, and that is just an absolute oversight from the IT department in it. Mm. End of life 2014. Yeah. So end of life was three years before this, and you know when a slightly worrying that an that you know an organization like NHS is using that kind of system, an outdated system. Yeah, shouldn't we, if anything, make sure that hospitals, uh, any kind of, I mean, those are governmental yeah. um, institutions in some way, right? Mm. And should they at least have? I mean, should then the government in itself be responsible or? To make sure that critical infrastructure is secure. Yes. Yeah. And patched up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag patch it up. <laughs> wow, do you work in branding? <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> no. no, but it's also interesting to see, like, what is critical infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Like, that's another mm-hmm. thing that, you know, almost everything is critical infrastructure. Like, when you yeah. think of it, like, and, and, and both, I think both the NHS attack and the... Not patchy attack, just shows how much 
of our daily life that is kind of run by technology. You don't see it because you don't see technology all no. the time. No. You're, you're walking around in the world and you're buying a piece of bread in your store, but you don't really think of like when you pull out your phone or your card, even better with your phone, because your phone, you don't, you don't see your phone as technology. You see it as your friends. You see it as your 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 feed. Mm. You see it as a way to communicate with the you know with your family. An extended arm. I, <laughs> yeah, like, I was just gonna say. Become, yeah. We become so much cyborgs, so mm. we don't really consider the phone necessarily tech. But you put that phone on top of the little thing in the, in the cash register and it goes, ping, and now you paid. Like you mm. don't like behind that. There's so much technology and there's so much security. And we go about our lives constantly every day. And if this technology wouldn't work, and like this is to some people like so obvious, but we don't think about it. So everything that we interact with every day almost becomes critical infrastructure. I think now when we're talking about payments, you know, it brings um, another case to my to my memory uh, where the Swift network was used to to hack into a bank. Yeah. Nice segue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, this so is also What is Swift first of all? Swift is the in it's called interbank payment system, mm. right? So when banks pay to each other or send money to each other, they use something called the Swift um, network. And um, if you if you look closely on one of your bills, uh, sometimes you will see a Swift number for a specific account. So, and it's it's a pretty old technology, uh, and it's been used for a long time. And it's you know it's it's governed by all the banks together. Like so, they they this is like the the live stream of 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 when banks and money back and forth to each other, and. Um, this is this story is an amazing story, and I can I, I would recommend listening to the BBC podcast. It's mm. a podcast series in eight episodes on on the on the Bangladesh bank heist. Uh, that's called the Lazarus heist. Um, the the podcast, and it's great because it goes into this in in depth. So okay, so let's backtrack a little bit. Like, why is it called the Lazarus heist? We can mm. start with the perpetrators here. Uh, I think that that's interesting. So the Lazarus group is a. North Korean hacker team, which is one of the best in the world. Which is so interesting. It is interesting, but it's fun that they're good at something. Yeah, <laughs> but, but <laughs> oh my god, but they they get groomed. I mean, just the, the a little bit of a backstory yeah. to it. So they groom children uh, who they see perform really well in schools in the mathematics. So they take them, I think at eight years old, and they start training them to become hackers. Oh, I have so many questions on this. What's the source of this? <laughs> What's the source? Yeah. Uh, the, the Darkner Diaries. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but also the BBC article, I think, yeah. describes that um, yeah, backstory. It's super, it's such a, it's, it, it, it's so much drama. So it should be a film. Yeah. This should be a film. It should be a film. Because fi- it's, it's such a... Netflix. It, yeah, and it start like let's let's go even further back. Like take a til- another detour here. Yeah. So when the when the film The Dictator mm? came yes. out um, on Sony, uh, when this must have been twenty fifteen, twenty fourteen, something mm? like that, which was essentially a film about the assassination of the leader of North Korea. 
And uh, that was not liked uh, by them. Uh, they don't like those kind of things. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? So uh, essentially, uh, they were forced. Sony had a hack by the Lazarus Group um, where they they could, I think they stole like all of the emails uh, from their mail server. So and they started spreading that around, so people would see like all the executives' emails back and forth, exposing the entire organization. Essentially, wasn't that the case, Barbara? I think you were, so. You were, I you were, you were, you were. I didn't see if you were nodding or. I'm or not sure. I can't remember, but I think that might be the case. There was some yeah. some kind of information they got from Sony yeah. uh, from their information data. Yeah, and what what happened? Like, I think they had to pull the film back, mm. right? Because they could not risk uh, this attack again. But it also showed like the extreme bad security from so, uh, from Sony's. Network. Yeah, eventually they did pull it back, I think. But for a while they were discussing um, the what, what how to frame this. So they were discussing the oh the the issue of I mean should we be uh, bullied by another country yeah. um, and not express our what do you say like the creativity yeah. uh, just because we're expressing it in a critical or like we're criticizing that yeah. country or showing it a negative something around that was a topic I think actually it ended up with them not putting the movie back just in order to yeah. not let another country because then that becomes a question of how how are we going to let other countries censor us like that mm. if we do that once then obviously this that's going to open up a window for not just North Korea, but maybe someone else. The Sony hack was what kind of brought the Lazarus Group into fame. Mm. Uh, and and so go back to the to the main story then. So this Bangladesh bank cyber heist. Uh, it took place in 2016, and it was essentially a a a, a steal from the Bangladesh country's account. With the Federal Reserve of New York, so they have an account. Bangladesh state, the state of Bangladesh have an account, and they were just sending essentially one billion dollars. That was they were attempting to steal a billion dollars, uh, and just transferring it to a bank account in in uh, in Bangladesh. And from that bank account, then they continued to funnel it to other places. And uh, the, the the cleverness. Of this was so beautifully put, put together. Like on the Friday when they did this deal, it was a Friday in New York, and no one was at the office because it was a bank holiday. And when the money arrived on the on the Monday in Bangladesh, that was a bank holiday. So no one noticed this for a number of of, of days, like this was happening. And and the reason why it was discovered was that one of the companies that they were funneling the money to, there was a name in that list that was misspelled, but was the same name as a terrorist, kind of a boat that was used for terrorist acts or piracy that was on a watch list. So they accidentally misspelled the company, the fake company they were using, and it was the same name as this boat. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden it was flagged, something fishy is going on. But they thought it was related to terrorism, but mm -hmm. this was, was exposed this and they could stop it, stop the bleed. So I think they 
ended up with eventually like having not one billion but a hundred million dollars they were yeah. able to transfer something like that. Uh, and then actually they could recoup a lot of the money because they didn't get a- enough, but uh, they they could they could stop it at its tracks. But it was still I think it was at the end of the day. 20 million dollars that was missing uh, and those 20 million dollars they could track to Macau uh, which is the Las Vegas of the Southeast Asia yeah. <laughs> world so it's, a, it's a weird island outside of China Hong Kong Hong Kong is mm-hmm. it close to Hong Kong yeah it's just Hong Kong it used to be like a Portuguese colony back yeah. in the day and it's it's um, very commonly used in um, in Fantomen, the Swedish <laughs> comic, where you have the the, the Sing Pirates, yeah. they usually hang out in Macau a lot. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a place of gambling, drugs, and prostitution, essentially. And uh, they used they used the casinos there to kind of launder the money, and actually then physically flying the money back into uh, North Korea because North Korea and Macau has a very strong bond. So they go there. The the, the top brass in in uh, in North Korea has that as a kind of a safe haven where they go on holidays, and and that's how they actually got the money into North Korea. And there's a little bit a lot of speculation like why did they do this? Mm-hmm. Like, like this has nothing to do with disrupting some another country's infrastructure or um, you know learning about someone's secrets but i think what everyone kind of comes down with at the end of the day is like oh it's a way of funding the country like it's actually yeah. a way of getting yeah. dollars into the country so they can buy whatever supplies they mm. they need and i guess they need a lot of things because they don't really have that much production in north korea so it is just an actual robbery uh, which is interesting coming from a state-sponsored group. Usually you have different objectives when you do that. But in this case, it's it seems to be like a pure robbery to get money into the country. But it's an interesting um, state-sponsored kind of um, attack, which is also a great story. Yeah, it was really, really well coordinated. Just hearing everything in the background and yeah. how they must have planned that for years before yeah. it happened. It's really well executed. Should we take the last case? Let's take the last case. Is this the best case? It is the best case. Well, it's also the most known hack ever, I think. Stuxnet. Mm. Yes. Tell us. I think, you know, we mentioned, we were talking about this slightly before. Like, most attacks happen because someone, someone human, made an error of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. Knowingly or not knowingly. Um, that's usually the most efficient kind of attack surface to use people that are not skilled in cybersecurity. So a little bit of background. So Stuxnet is again a worm, and it and it can penetrate into what's called SCADA system, which is a control system uh, type of architecture for industrial machines. So for different like programmable logic controllers, like the way you operate heavy machinery in a manufacturing process, for example. Um, So that's what it could do. And in this particular case, uh, this was in 2010. So in Iran, uh, they were enriching uranium to be able to make weapon-grade plutonium. And to do that, you need to use centrifuge to separate the two isotopes of, of, of uranium. Uh, you, you need one of them and not the other one um, to make plutonium. 
So you use centrifuge, you spin them, and you get you can extract the one that you need. And um, and most likely this hack was done by the US. No one has obviously um, commented on this, uh, but that is what's most commonly thought about this hack. They want to stop this. They did not want Iran to have access to potential uh, nuclear weapons because that was their that was what the global community thought they were doing this for. You could also use this kind of same kind of technique to be able to build nuclear reactors, but in this particular case, it was thought to be for for weapon reasons. Um, okay, so this worm, the Stuxnet worm. What it does is that it introduces irregularities in the spinning frequency of these centrifuges. So you create a little bit of wobble and the centrifuge breaks. But it was very cleverly designed so that it just looked like a like a like a mechanical malfunctioning of this. And they didn't really spin them up that much, so they just through like flew apart mm. just enough and they came in sequences you, they couldn't really understand what was going on they just saw that their centrifuge broke all the time like but they couldn't figure out and it took a while before they actually um, understood that this was was happening so but, first they didn't even find the fault even no no because it just looked like a normal malfunctioning of the system so it wasn't um, Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it, it is brilliant. But here comes the even more brilliant thing uh, with this one. If if you think that these can, things can be brilliant, but I think you must be able to recognize the beauty. Even yes. Doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, so this, these centrifuges, the system that controls them, are not connected to the internet. So how would you get the the virus or the worm in there? Because so it's called it's air gapped. So there's no physical connection uh, from these systems to the internet, and there's no Wi-Fi connection. So you have to kind of smuggle the code in a heavily guarded, you know, nuclear weapon enrichment plant and get the virus in there. You need to get the code onto the machines. So how do you do that? And that's like the no one really knows. No one knows how this happened. It could be an inside job. Mm-hmm. A disgruntled Iranian nuclear engineer that just wanted to do this and got in contact with the CIA and they gave most likely him a lot of money. Could you please plug this USB stick into one of these machines or could you run this program? Could you do this? No one really knows exactly how it happened, but it just it did happen. Someone put it in there. And um that's what's usually was called like social engineering. Somehow, someone influenced someone to do this, right? And sometimes this happened unknowingly and sometimes knowingly. But a a person must have had to put some code onto these machines. And that's why it's so important for, for companies in general to make sure that, you know, don't trust anyone that you know you don't know don't click this link don't use this usb stick don't answer to this email don't do this right so those are those are very simple simple ways to um, 
to stop these things from happening because the human element or the human factor here most commonly what what opens the door for malicious actors. But that was like no one really knows. You can one can fantasize just like how they did this, but no one knows. They never found a culprit. Not that we know of, mm-hmm. but maybe there's dead people in the sand somewhere in Iran. <laughs> <laughs> but how how did they find out it was a hack? Even yeah. how can they they how did they confirm that it is not a malfunction? It is an actual hack. Where did they find the code? Uh, I, I I don't know exact. I don't remember exactly how they actually found it. But eventually, just like it became, to I think it was actually found. The, the worm had somehow spread somewhere else and it was found outside of um, of Iran and then they could figure out that this might have been what happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I but I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know that. But eventually they found out anyway and, and, and could fix this. But I mean, it, it, but regardless if it was the US or, or you know, in collaboration with, with Israel or whatever, you know, those like likely culprits here, but... Uh, regardless um, of who did it, they achieved the objective. Like mm, they mm. delayed, you know, a potential nuclear uh, nuclear enrichment plant in Iran with years mm. because you had to kind of rebuild everything and oh, it didn't wow. work. So it was, you know, from from that objective, it was a great hack. It's also a cool name, Stuxnet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know if that was conscious or social engineering that, in the sense that someone consciously put the worm there or if someone was tricked into that. But it's quite common though that someone within the company is tricked into somehow sneaking something in or just yeah, clicking a link. Yeah. How do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Because it's usually quite quite smart ways of tricking someone into into well, reacting as you want them to. Mm. No, I think it, it's just a matter of The problem with us humans, yeah, <laughs> in this particular context, is that we are quite, quite nice, right? Oh yeah, naive. <laughs> I mean, I, I think about that a lot in our office building. You know, when I I, I I come with my bike in the morning, someone is exiting the building, and I want to get in with my bike, and they're nice. They're holding up the door for me. But if someone wanted to break in here, I don't know. We don't really have anything to steal, to be honest. But They could just observe. You could sit outside here, observe mm. the pattern of how people get in, and then just fake coming in with a bike, you know. And or you know, someone standing outside of your of your um, entrance to your um, to your office and just ringing the, the, the doorbell and she's like, "Hey, I'm here to to mm. see." You know, they can just they can just Google up. Like who are working in this company? Well, I'm here to see Martina. Oh, please come in. Like, yeah, that's very hard. That's very hard mm-hmm. to say. No, you have to stay out here in the hallway until I check this. You don't really do that because most people are nice, but we shouldn't be nice because we just like no. You stay out here. This is our. You know, there's no, there's no network jacks or nothing out here. You can't do anything, uh, and then you just keep them there until Martina yeah. arrives. Right. It's quite interesting. This is why it's so hard. This yeah. is why social engineers that are skilled at mani- manipulating people, they take mm-hmm. advantage of us humans being nice. Most of us are. It takes a lot of guts to just say, huh, you stay there until I check this. Yeah. I mean, some companies, just last week we went uh, with our team to one of the 
sound design companies and you have to sign into their iPads and who you're seeing when you enter the office. Yeah. I mean, so that's just maybe a good basic yeah. kind of need for a company that's maybe not dealing with something that's extremely secure. Mm. Then I would assume that, yeah, that helps them track where the fault is coming from mm. after that has happened. But mm. do they actually use that in order to let someone in? Or... Mm. So yes, yeah, so when you enter, you have to sign yourself in. And then normally when you sign yourself in, the person you are saying you're seeing... Right, has to come up and meet you. Exactly, okay, because you fine. get a notification. So I think in this case, you're kind of putting it on people. But if we just go and look at a bit of a bigger picture, there was an article today on SVD talking about how Sweden is actually attacked every day. Um, but at the same time, we lag quite a lot behind many other countries when it comes to protecting ourselves uh, as a country against cyber threats. And some of the points being raised in the article were that companies like how to achieve a better security just on a company to company level is for companies to start rather sharing the vulnerabilities with each other which obviously then exposes them and their vulnerabilities to other companies and is that then something that you don't want to do as a company or should you do because long term it gives you a better you know security and then there was also another topic on that Sweden uh, in 2020 or 2021 uh, opened a cybersecurity center, but at the same time, that center hasn't done a lot of work apart from setting up their premises. But how responsible, I mean, in this case, should Sweden be in engaging as, as, a, as a country and with this cybersecurity center in engaging with different companies actively on a daily basis, trying to identify potential threats? I mean, you could still make it um, uh, anonymous as which company mm. is experiencing what threat. I think it's absolutely necessary, mm. uh, and uh, you know, in in some shape or form, I leave that up to the policymakers how you would do that. Mm. But I think if, if you just go back to where we kind of started this conversation, and and the notion that almost every infrastructure, to some extent, is kind of infrastructure we use every day is critical mm. for us to actually live our lives. That critical infrastructure is by in most cases, not delivered by the government, it's delivered by different kind of companies that might be regulated and have to you know, comply with certain um, um, regulatory demands for, for exactly these kinds of reasons. But that kind of collaboration between companies need to happen. Like mm -hmm. That's a good thing. I can't really see any issues with that. And of course, you can design this in a way so that you're not exposing you know yourself, yeah. uh, and 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 if the government can kind of support that that kind of um, that kind of collaboration, I think that's pretty good because it's society at the end of the day. To some extent, like us as individuals, as citizens, not necessarily as customers, that might have a you know be impacted by this. Mm. So for the for the government to kind of coordinate like that, I think makes perfect sense. But it, it's it's also like the way you would do this, like when you find vulnerabilities, when a vulnerability in a system is found, that's mm. usually called like a zero day. Like in a zero day, it's just like it's it's gone zero days from when it was discovered and publicly communicated. 
if you find something, uh, if a hacker, like a benign hacker, like someone who does penetration testing or uh, um, tries to hack other com- like companies just to find the vulnerabilities, they usually kind of, which happens all the time in the, in the, in the security industry, they kind of communicate that most often to the company. Exposed. Is that called a bounty program? The bounty or? program is when a company asks people to to actually hack for money. Yeah, mm. that's for any open for any enthusiasts. Yeah, anyone it? can yeah. do it. Like you, you, if you can, if you can hack us, you will get this and this much money. But you have to share the exploit with us so mm. we can fix it. Of course, first, usually that's what happened. Like if someone. And these are like these. You hear these stories all the time. Like someone finds a vulnerability, reports it to, let's say, Microsoft, and say, "You have 90 days to fix this. Then I'm going to release it." Yeah. That's also a bit of the culture in in the kind of security hacking type of world. I, I would assume a lot of people working in security has also been hackers when yeah. they were younger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Isn't you, there you, a term called white hackers? Yeah, or? White, white hats. Yeah, white, white hats, hats and black hats. Uh, For white hats, if. If they are working, I mean, if they, I guess, communicate the vulnerability and are trying to help versus black, yeah. actually, so it's just like there's dividing, very simplified. Yeah, dividing the different uh, types of hacking. You can be a white hat or a black hat. Um, you know, you just kind of, I'm going to expose this in 90 days. You have mm. to fix it before that. And, and sometimes you can also hear like really weird stories, like you don't get, any, you don't, you get no response because you're trying to kind of create security through obscurity. Mm. Like you're hiding things uh, and hope that people won't find. That's How huge. do you mean? I mean, so, so you can you can create security by by openness. Yeah. So so let, okay. So let's take um, let's take um, open source mm. as a, as a as a term. And open source is just that a, a piece of software is built, and all the source code, the actual inner workings of a program. Is open for everyone to see, right? So then you would imagine, if everything is open, wouldn't that be super easy then to hack? But and it could be. So, I, but let's take the, the the good case first, right? So <laughs> <laughs> let's take the good case first. So it's open all the time, which means that it's checked all the time, and a lot of people write this. So it's like a little bit of almost like a peer review system. If I add something to the code, if I use the code. I can use it freely. I can build on it, but I have to share back what I build back onto the onto the source code, like the main repository. And this is continuously being checked by security experts, other hack, other developers, or you know whoever. Which inherently, not inherently, but if everything is working well, that actually increases security because the security is not kept in the actual code. It's like mm. other layers. You know that you use to make that happen, but then you can actually review the code and check the code if it has any malicious in, uh, content. But if you have more proprietary code, where you don't see into the software, then you're hiding your code, and th- and then you say like, now it's secure, but it's secure security by obscurity. You you can't see it, and it can't be checked. But the hackers, they are persistent people. Right, they will try to find that that vulnerability by testing, brute force testing, doing all mm. kinds of things, uh, just finding a, a library in Windows that no one has checked, and all of a sudden that connects to something in a computer, and as you realize it, like if I do, 
if I put like a little piece of metal inside of the the, the earplug, mm. that will that will uh, that will do something weird with the system, and then all of a sudden I have access to this. I, I have a note on that, just a quick one, because in. I can't mention who the client was, but in one of my previous companies, I worked with a client and we built an app for them um, for a specific yeah, campaign. And um, that's what happened a couple of times. There was this brute force, but it was done through, so weird, but it was done through just like tapping a screen. Uh, when you had the app playing the experience, you Like if you tapped the screen at a certain point in time, like numerous times, it would give you a prize that you otherwise could, I mean, could not win unless you collected, you know, specific points. There was like a bug, or yeah, like there was a a fault in a code that uh, the developers haven't patched or foreseen. Yeah, I mean, what if that would would happen for, let's say, a lottery? kind of mm. company. Then all of a sudden that could become then you build then you build a fake you build a software that mimics the tapping of a finger and you have 100 phones and they're all yes. tapping and that is a hack, right? It, it is a hack. But you, and it's not like this like you think it's like in hackers yeah. in that old 90s movies if you've seen yeah. that uh, you know with Robert Fred. It's not like that. It's much simpler stuff that happens. And you have to, I mean, this is super hard to protect against, obviously, because you don't know, you don't know your vulnerabilities until they're found. Yes. It's yes. very hard to think of every scenario where your code or where your people or employees or your physical you know, locations can be, how they can be exploited. It's super hard to think about all yeah. the different scenarios. Yes, you just have to be a little bit creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> and I mean, maybe find the hack yourself. That's why it's so interesting, I think, to actually to 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 dive into the world of hacking because it's insanely creative. Usually, that does this, and 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 yes, they are breaking the law, but it is also the the art of creativity and the art of possible and how you, can you exploit you know the way a system is built. So, but, but yeah, let me just finish that open source part. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So open source, oh, open source is kind of no, no. But it's 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 it's, it's often, most often, it's it's much sec- more secure because yeah. the code is checked and mm-hmm. it's transparent enough. But then you have, you know, the way that you build kind of software today is well, you build, of course, your own your own parts of it, but you also borrow a lot. Uh, from um, from like GitHub, where mm. people share open source. I mean, GitHub has become kind of the repository for open source projects, um, and um, you can write your own libraries and pieces of code that can be used for various things in 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 larger projects. Like let's say, let's say like the Linux um, um, operating system, for example. You can write specific things that does things on Linux. And that could just be like, I need to do this, so I build this piece of code that does something. And then maybe other people will use it. Maybe it's being put into the Linux core, uh, um, if, if it's good enough, if it does something specific. And um, But that also means that there's a shitload of bad code on, on GitHub. And, and someone might just be picking up libraries and pieces of code from different places and use that in your own in your own proprietary code, because you can do that depending on the licenses, like these different open source licenses. Sometimes you can use the code mm. and you put them into your own project and that's a proprietary. And, and, and sometimes that is a part of the licensing agreement, so you can do that. 
Um, and you, if you're not careful with what you choose and you vet that and vamp it, then all of a sudden you can you can build your own software and have malicious code that was just put on GitHub to, to lure you in and use this to simplify something, but there's something hidden oh. in the code. And if you're not careful, you know, that can certainly happen, right? Mm. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's the most commonly thing, but I mean, and, and that is something called like a, that's a, that could be like, you can call it like a supply chain attack mm. if you see GitHub as a supply chain. Mm-hmm. So it's early on in the software development process, just like a library that controls a f- specific feature of a, of a computer. And then all of a sudden that propagates through the, through the different places where it's been used. And then all of a sudden it's in, in something that a lot I of mean, it's almost like as if someone hacked the TSMC semiconductors. Yes, right, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that is actually also, not maybe them, but you know, it has gone so far that you have to, that is an attack vector. Actually, building physically into hardware, into chips, specific things that will do something in a particular instance in a piece of hardware, right? So today, almost everything is a computer, Mm. right? So maybe, let's. I mean, there's, there's this famous baby monitor hack, where you have baby monitors with video cameras on them. Yes, I heard right? that. And they are usually connected through Wi-Fi. But the, 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 the software implementation is usually quite bad because it's not considered a, a, a super important thing to secure. But if you just Google stolen baby monitor videos and images, you will have like the whole internet is filled with them. And that's just wow. because that, that code is kind of badly produced. Yeah. But you can also imagine like, okay, let's have a slightly more sophisticated hack buying, let's say, a security camera from China. You know, mm. The code that runs that can certainly be really bad. Or even the hardware can be you know, um, made in a way that you can have a backdoor into the system. That's why it's so important for most hardware building companies they need to make sure that every step of their supply chain, all the way down to the chipset, is actually secure. So oh, you have yeah. to you have to vet all your sub suppliers that brings in various parts into your into your hardware. And super important part, and that's like that's where where you try to get in like mm. as early as possible because then it can propagate to as many as possible. But that's it's the like thing. basic technology. Do, do all do all. Uh, companies have the resources to vet their supply yeah. chain that way. No, that's why. That's why. Of course not. Yeah. It's super hard. You have to be a. That's why you should maybe be a bit hesitant to buy things. Let's say from GoFundMe or any mm-hmm. other kind of yeah. you know crowdfunding type of sites that builds a piece of hardware. Most, some of them are super good. Like I'm not saying in general you shouldn't trust crowdfunding kind of companies, but. If there's a piece of hardware that does something in your house or in your yeah. car, or and you don't know who's behind the project, 
you know, they it's going to be very, very hard for them to kind of secure every part of every piece of technology they use in their specific product. That's very, that's very, very yeah. hard for someone who is not big to do that. Yeah, and especially when you have someone that is just in the, like in the startup phase, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. they don't have the resources no, to no. to do that, and they haven't even tested their products, their no. hardware no. Uh, enough to. To actually even find any vulnerabilities, mm. I suppose. So those are. The, I mean, there's yeah, there's security issues everywhere, I, I guess. But it's <laughs> but, also, but it's like when you look at I before this, uh, uh, I, I just looked like what should companies do to secure themselves? I just yeah. took like just mm-hmm. like what are the top ten things? And and I, I could have written this myself. I just took it from some source just because. And this list is interesting. Like, is train your staff number one? Yes, right? it's just like <laughs> the, the most typical, more, right? Mm. Keep your software and systems fully up to date. Okay, so we've seen the the the, the drawbacks of not doing mm. that. Ensure endpoint protection. Can we elaborate? On yeah, that? but that's just like make sure you have a virus scanning oh, system yeah, or okay. some kind of endpoint protection for the actual device. And you, there's tons of different ways of doing this. Maybe you need to log on into your computer with a secure shell around the computer so you're always secure but it could also be virus programs mm. or mm. So, so things do not propagate from a single computer. Um, install a firewall which is also yeah they've been around for a while. Um, th- that's an interesting challenge though nowadays because a lot of companies do not have their own wide area network or like a network. They just have devices in your own device kind of way and you like run your own applications, whatever you want to work with. So a firewall is like, it's harder and harder to do that because you don't really have one office, one physical office, a hard firewall protecting that particular local area network. You don't have that anymore. You work in a cafe, you work in a public Wi-Fi. So you need to think about how you do firewalls nowadays. Okay, so the ne- the fifth one, back up your data. Okay, that's also <laughs> yes. Okay, kind of basic stuff. Control access to your systems. <laughs> okay, that's quite straightforward. Uh, but that could be that could also be things like uh, if you're not working with, let, let's say, a router, mm. for example. If you buy, if you get a router from your local ISP, most often. They will have a default login. One thing. What is an ISP? Oh, sorry, an internet service provider. Thank you. So you get internet into your into your home, and then you have a router that needs to create Wi-Fi or or other things, but give you internet at home essentially. And usually, when you want to log into that and to control settings or change your Wi-Fi password, for example, because mm. it all comes with a default. Maybe it's password. Maybe mm. it's one two three four. Whatever you want to change that to something. Um, uh, specific when that you, you log in and some people change this i always do because i want to have my own uh you know so i always do that because you don't want to you don't want to be have the ability of someone standing outside of your home picking up your wi-fi and then being able to log on to your router and fix the like do things with the router that might you know steal your traffic or do packet sniffing so they know what you're doing uh you know so that's like that people don't change. And some routers of low quality might even have like default ports open so people can just 
go into your router and then start looking at what you do on online, for example. So that's like that now wow. I took this in a in a in a more of a, of a private context, but mm. control access to your system. Which also this this corresponds nicely with Wi-Fi security, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is the which yeah. is seventh on the list. Uh, and then you have like employee personal accounts. Right. So mm. you should Email. never you should never have shared accounts. You should have individual accounts because if you share accounts, you will most likely use an easy to remember password. Um, and you share it to a lot of people, but always do individual accounts with individual passwords that you also make sure that they actually change regularly or at least have them really complicated. So don't be don't be greedy with licenses. Just make sure that everyone has their own. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. And make it easy to create an account, for example. This is usually something that is like sometimes it is hard. So then you just share your, you know, because it's hard to get access and then you're like, let's share, you can use mine. Uh, right. So that's that should never be done, high especially risk. with 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 high um, um you know with with systems that can be impacted greatly. Mm. Access management, like who do you actually let into a building, who are who get access to things in general, mm-hmm. and the and final one, final one, passwords. <laughs> <laughs> Drum roll. <laughs> okay, so we've been doing this for a long time now, but let, you're probably going to edit this. So, but passwords is. Have you heard about the LinkedIn password leak? No. Yes. Maybe. Wait. wait. Yes. Yes. Not but... too long ago, right? I, this happened quite some time ago. Really? Yeah, there was a hack of the LinkedIn database uh, with, um, I think, let me see if I get this right now. So there was, um, I don't think, but I might be wrong, it doesn't really matter. So, But I don't think you got the, there wasn't a breach of login name, password. But the password list without having the, I think, I think the passwords were not hashed. And mm, hash mm-hmm. is just like you put a, a script that hides the actual, like you have a hash. Uh, so it's just a way of scrambling a password. So I think the login name were hashed, but the passwords passwords weren't. And it was like, how many were you, you Google it now? It's like yes, hundreds it was of thousands of passwords, right? 6.5 million. 6.5 million. User accounts. But were it was stolen. also the accounts, with just, the account, like where everything. So it happened on June 5th, 2012, and passwords for nearly 6.5 million user accounts were stolen by Russian cyber criminals. Yeah. Owners of the hacked accounts were no longer able to access their accounts, and the website repeatedly encouraged its users to change their passwords after the incident. In May 2016, LinkedIn discovered an additional 100 million oh email God. addresses and hashed passwords that claimed to be additional data from the same 2012 breach. But LinkedIn has a lot, and then a collection containing data about more than 700 million users believed to have been scrapped from LinkedIn was leaked online in September 2021 in form of a torrent file after hackers previously tried to sell it earlier in June 2021. I'm reading this on Wikipedia. Uh, source, if you want to Google it, is 2012 LinkedIn, LinkedIn hack. <laughs> <laughs> Don't use no, LinkedIn. I, mean, no. I think like the, the, um, 
They, oh, the, the, so this is obviously a big breach. This was like one of the That's a massive breach. Huge. These, these kind of breaches are. This is like this is a proper hack. Yeah, mm. a proper hack. Mm. Uh, you know, someone did something very technical to steal this, most likely. But it might be someone who clicked the link as well you know, to get in. Like who knows? Mm. But the 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 interesting thing with this is like this breach, this six point five then million uh, passwords that has been used. That's like the holy grail of password, holy grail of passwords, because it shows what is it that we use as password. Yes. Mm. So the, you've been. This has been crunched by security specialists like a lot. So, so I'm going to read you now the top ten passwords people had when they were hacked. Rank one. One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> that was ten percent. What? Like over 10% of those leaked email, uh, those leaked passwords. The second most used password was LinkedIn. (laughs) The third was password. The fourth was 12345678789. And the fifth was (laughs) 12345678. Then it was (laughs) 111111. Sorry, but these people the deserve cre- to be hacked. The creativity is just one, like going two, three, down. Four, five, six, seven. And then it was QWERTY. <laughs> and then it was six, five, four, three, two, one. So that those, the number 10 here, they reverse the order. So if you have one of these passwords, and it's interesting to check the, the strength of your own password, which I do from time to time. Not anymore, because now I have really good passwords everywhere. I don't even know them myself. <laughs> <laughs> one more here. Yeah. So if you have a password that is like eight, it doesn't really matter if it's password or LinkedIn. Like this, these, this list is used for brute force hacking. Mm. So you just take like you start, you you get a script going on wherever site you want to hack, and you might have a list of user accounts, and That's you just try to match that, that. and yeah. you just test like boom, 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 boom. You can test how many as possible, mm. right? But even without this list, like this list has been used to 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 build brute force hacking tools because you know which one are the most common. So if you have a normal, let's say, six or seven or eight digit, or, 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 or not digit, it's um, Character. characters. And, and, and you don't have any special um, characters like hashtag or slash or whatever, and no numbers, like you are brute force within a second. Because you can test it, so it's so easy to do. Like if you increase the length of the password, like to twelve characters, then that increases a lot. And if you also use special characters and numbers, then it takes hundreds, maybe even thousands of years to brute force crack it. So mm. that's like that's a good way of thinking when you do this. And I mean, I have a thirty-five character master password or something like that. It's really long. Wow. Do are you use the same one then? No, no. no. So I have one master password for my password manager. And then I have individual passwords for every service that I use. Yeah. And I don't even know those passwords because they're so com- they are all they're all they're all long and they all contain like all of these. So they are the brute force crack then will not happen because there's they're they're long enough and complicated enough. But those I don't know. But I can't have such a complex master password, so I have to make it really long so I can remember it. But those passwords, uh, Martina, they're generated by the help of these platforms. Every time you create a new login, you can ask the password manager to give you a password suggestion, and then you can pick how many characters you want, should there be numbers, should there be special characters, and then it just generates one for you and you can use that. 
Is that like a plugin or something that you yes. use for yeah. Chrome? Yeah. And then you have it like on whatever, you know, you have it on your phone, you have it wherever mm. you need passwords, and then it kind of pops up and says, do you want to autofill with this? And just autofill. Yes, yes. But also here, like, so so you use Password Manager or like yeah, one, password, one Password. One Password. Mm. I use Bitwarden because it's open source. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and it's a trusted, I, I mean, I trust that project anyway okay. because it's constantly checked. Like yeah. I used LastPass before, mm. but that was too complicated. Like I didn't like the user interface and also started charging a hell of a lot more for it. So, mm, and it also okay. been hacked. <laughs> That's yeah. <not> good. No. <laughs> So, no. um, okay. yeah, so you want to you wanna have a good password manager so you can actually have good passwords because you cannot yeah. keep track of it, right? I mean, it's super hard to keep track of, of, um, of, of good passwords. Can you have that on iPhone as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You can have it everywhere. Everywhere. And it's super important that you don't use the same password for different services because you usually use the same Email address, mm. yeah. your account, that's true. Name, yeah. And then you know, once you and you should absolutely, absolutely not have the same password for your email as you have for everyone else. If you want to do just the bare minimum of security, then you should have one password for your email, which is your primary identity still, and then you could have another one for all other services because at least you can't go into your email. And start changing the passwords on other services. No. If you hacked once, yeah. If you can also then use the same credentials to log on to your email, if you have a Gmail or whatever, then all of a sudden you can just search for all other services and say, mm. "Hey, oh, this person also have a LinkedIn account. Let's see if they have the same password, and I can change it, <laughs> and you can be locked out of everything." Tina's getting uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Just twitching a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so if you just go back to like, how should you secure yourself? Like, yes, you should have good technical security, of course. You mm. should have all the, the IT staff should do all these things. But, you know, these five, these ten things are quite, and the, you, you can find this list, this kind of list, they look the same. Mm. Yeah. It's fairly basic stuff. And, you know, train your staff is number one. Don't, Click on anything that feels suspicious. Yeah. Mm. Don't do it. Just don't. Just don't do it. And get a good password. And, and get, get a good yeah. yes. manager. Should do you think we should start including an education about cybersecurity already very early in school? I think it certainly should be a part of whatever other mm. IT education you get. Mm. Right. Uh, for sure. It's. I mean. It's. It's. I feel like it should be a part of a curriculum. The basic curriculum should have this included just because we are becoming so, we are already so digital, everything yeah. is software-based. I feel like that should be like the basic knowledge we get in schools at yeah. a very early age. I mean, I don't know much about curriculums, but surely there must be at least like one class, or like one lesson or something that, they, that kids have a year just about cybersecurity. I, I would doubt they have, that. They have coding, right? Yeah, I know in I Sweden mean, they have like basic coding. Well, um, uh, I would, not know. I am pretty sure. <laughs> I would, yeah, for sure. You learn how to use a computer, mm. and you, you you might learn how to code a little bit, um, and especially in maybe in in high school, you do that when you're specializing a bit more. But this is like learning. This is like sex education. Like, I mean, it's, like, it's, so, it's so basic. Yeah. You need yeah. to know yeah. it, and and because the 
the um, the effects are so devastating if mm. you're actually breached, like yeah. both on a personal level, of course, but in a in a professional context, it, it's it's then of course the stakes are higher because it doesn't only impact yourself. The message here is that it do the simple things first, and then you'll be protected from a lot of things. Right, that's a good starting point, and and uh, and then at least we've taken a few steps closer to make sure that the technical part of our kind of global infrastructure becomes more secure and resilient, right? So, so I mean, someone in Ukraine clicked a link that targeted, that started the whole NotPetya attack. Someone in NHS did something with the WannaCry attack. Stuxnet, well, someone put in that USB stick. And it's, it's almost the, the Bangladeshi and bank heist. That, like, I don't think it was actually that much human intervention. That was just very cleverly done. <laughs> uh, but most of these high-profile cases are are human, you know, human uh, error uh, enabled uh, by uh, human. Yeah, so someone who does something either, you know, on purpose, but most likely not on purpose, and mm. and. And those hacks that you, you know, when you hear what is called advanced persistent threats, like mm. APTs, which is state of the art of technical hacking, where you like, we try to, you actually send something into a national phone, you know, telecom system that stays there for years, mm. super dormant, just waiting for the right moment. Those are scary, but they are very rare, and and, uh, and and they are very hard to do, and they need like a lot of funding and technological expertise. Most of the hacks come down to to someone clicking a link or doing something that they shouldn't have done, uh, because that's always the easiest way in for a hacker. So just doing that, if you don't do anything but training your staff, um, you know, then train your staff. Don't do that, or don't let them do whatever they want to do. So after going through a pandemic, after having the most recent years of increased amounts of cyber hacks, will we see resilience and security being a high priority? Yes, I think so. I mean, I I would almost say I know so, uh, but that would be very <laughs> <laughs> facetious. You know, I had uh, I think you were in that interview as well, Martina. We had an interview with a strategy head of a technology company recently, and we spent half of the time talking about resilience. So, and and that was not from a cybersecurity perspective necessarily, but it's on the agenda. And I mean, for very good reasons. We have a war at the heart of Europe, you know, and, and I think this is really pushing this. There are wars ongoing all the time. We just don't see them because we're hacked. We're attacked all the time. And I think just the instability of the world we're in right now, all of a sudden, puts these kinds of questions on the top of the agenda. And and especially if I tie back to like where we started this very long winded discussion. <laughs> Super fun. You know, we've had a an economy since 2008-ish um, where we had a little blip, you know, with high interest rates and, and declining asset, you know, building prices and a bit of insecurity during the Lehman Brothers crash that impacted a lot of people, especially in the US, but around the world. And it really sent shockwaves through the financial systems. But since that, since then, I mean... 
we have we came out of that crisis by i think artificially creating uh, a booming kind of economy not only because mm. we've also done a lot of good technological innovations since then but the supply of very cheap money for 14 years has created like a almost like a a view of the world that we finally cracked it we can have you know prosperity indefinite, indefinite prosperity without recessions like this 14 years where we've had um growth very high growth and you look at asset prices as in the housing market but also on the stock market they've been like absolutely going through the roof mm. in a very short period of time and and that corresponds like one could imagine that corresponds to technological innovation and globalization to some extent that is true but it's also artificially powered by very very cheap money and i still don't understand how we've not had a an inflation increase during this time you know that's for someone to figure out i don't understand it completely why that has happened but those money those those funds has gone into asset prices instead so for 14 years this has happened and i mean if i just look for how long i've been working i've been working for about 20 years most of our workforce especially in in younger types of companies have never experienced a recession i did it once like in 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 like i couldn't get a job when i got out of school well i could but it was just because the recession from the the the, the 2000 crash was just over mm. right and then and then uh, we had this lehman brothers which wasn't really a recession it was something else it was a financial crisis that we recouped from fairly quickly but we have had a situation where everything has always been working and it's just been more like your apartment has always gone up in price yes your salary has always gone up in price there's been no financial hindrance of course you always have too little money of course but you know but in general it has not and then all of a sudden now we're moving into a situation with high inflation rate most likely declining growth rates in all western in all the in all economies around the world and and uh, and most likely also to some extent collapsing asset prices and the resilience part in this like to be able to protect yourself the ones who the companies and the individuals that can create resilience around their own presence in 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 society i think that's going to be a super important um component that goes well beyond cybersecurity but cybersecurity is of course an important part of this so yes yes long-winded, <laughs> yes long winded answer to this but but yes i think it's going to be it's 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 going to be on on the agenda it's also i think it's going to be one of the differentiators for companies especially in the mm. b2b context yeah how important is that going to be for a brand or what impact is that going to have on a brand it's going to change what people consider valuable will change things that has been completely out of out of de- like out of fashion stability supply chains their work the unsexy part of the becoming sexy part of companies yeah. you know that will all of a sudden be interesting for customers mm. again and and if you divide it into like b2b and b2c um 
like for the B2B customers or the B2B brands that sell to other companies, that's going to be super important. And I think like if you if you if you take us a, a little bit of a international perspective on this, like Swedish companies in general, like the traditional basic industries that we have, we have always been pretty good at that. That's a little mm. bit of what we've done in Sweden uh, in general. We've been uh, innovative, but we've also been a bit cautious. We've been building resilience into the way that our economy kind of works, not from a necessarily from a from a, a polit- political perspective, but the way that companies operate. So I think those kind of companies will potentially see a resurgence in in popularity among um, um, a talent, but also, of course, on to the companies that they sell they sell to in the B two C space. That's going to be a slightly different story, um, but you know, will it come to a situation? Hopefully not, and most likely not. But let's take grocery chains. Who can keep their shelves stocked? And and it's also it's going to be. I think it's going to be changing on what we value because we don't. You know what? You, what do you say? You don't miss the cow until the booth is empty. Uh, and it's the same thing. Like we are, I mean, we have grown accustomed to, of course we could have an avocado in December in Sweden. You know, if you would have asked someone in 1950s, can we have a tropical, you know, <laughs> fruit, fruit <laughs> in Sweden in December? And it's actually ripe, just mm-hmm. enough ripe, you know. Are you kidding me? Of course we can't have that. We can have beets. But all of a sudden, it's like we we think that it's obvious that we should have an avocado, and and maybe we won't have avocados, even though we have all the technological ability to transport them here, uh, you know, at a, at a at a reasonable cost and you know s- sustainability impact. But maybe you know we won't, and then there's going to be the companies that have been able to to create resilience in their supply chains, have buffers in mm. the system, etc. I guess operations, financials, technology, reputation, business all, models yes, across all, all verticals. But, yeah. but then, I mean, let's see how long this this trend lasts. I think mm. it's going to have it's multiple year impact, I think. But who, who knows? It's just <laughs> what to say. Don't... This, the information here contains forward-pointing information. We can't take responsibility for that. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. No, I think it's going to be a, a, a change, right? And especially if we hit a, a, a really deep recession, which we don't really know yet uh, how bad a recession is going to be. Uh, but there will most likely be a recession. And it's going to be like the first recession, proper recession since the beginning of the 90s. It's going to be a huge shock for the population. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the globalized, to be able to do this in a good way, like the global trade and the globalization will have to re-emerge mm. right, to some extent. And, and because that's what's going to drive growth and, and, and prosperity. And then we have to make sure that we can do that within, of course, a CO2 sustainable way of doing things. So we will also most likely move things more close to consumption 
Uh, so we can actually transport things less, but then we can trade with other things. We can do it in, in different ways, right? So, But th- that is more like a more existential threat. <laughs> so, so some things we should be able to, you know, move back, right? If, we, if, we're, if we're automation production, then we don't need low-cost countries. But then on the other hand, then we're leaving low-cost countries that has built their entire economies on production, you know, what, how, are we gonna, how, how are we gonna deal with that, right? So yes, there's, there's, so there's always not, someone that suffers. Yeah, there's not a simple answer to these questions, mm. obviously. But um, so we probably have a long-term, more sustainability-driving relocalization, but, but the shocks and the unresilience, unre- like the, 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 the lack of resilience in the global system, that mm. we need to fix because we need to be able mm-hmm. to trade. We need to, we need our avocados. <laughs> <laughs> For avocado toast. I think that's a wonderful ending quote. <laughs> we need our avocados. But... Yvonne, thank you thank so you much guys. for joining it was us. So much fun. Thank it you. It was so much fun. Great, great discussion. <laughs> Who would have thought resilience was this fun? I know. I know. I've learned a lot during my research of this episode. And uh, I always learn a lot from talking to you, Johan. So it's this has been a great this educational session. Thank you all for listening. Go to the links in the description to follow us on social media or visit 70 Agency website for more information. And if you like this episode, don't forget to share and subscribe so you never miss out on future episodes.